0: Week 15, Doctrine of Worship. We have been talking about the uniqueness of corporate worship as a place of God's special presence. And we began by asking such questions as, what then should our worship look like if corporate worship is unique? If God's presence is there among us in a unique way, in a special way, what should our worship look like? What is appropriate? What is inappropriate? Is there even such a thing as inappropriate worship? That's kind of where we're at right now. What, if anything, governs our worship? And again, this all in the context of God's unique presence in the corporate worship of His church. And so... Last week we began talking about the regulative principle of worship, RPW for short. And we began with a broad definition, some general considerations of such, and I'm going to recap that in a moment. moment. But this week we're going to look at the scriptural basis for it. So we just kind of began the discussion last week. This week we're going to look at scripture and see, okay, is this taught in scripture? And then we will look ahead... Uh, hopefully beginning next week, depending on questions, turning more specifically to making application of the regulative principle of worship. In the area of leading in worship, the day of worship, music, liturgy structure, forms of worship, all of these things as applications that flow out of this regulative, regulative principle of worship. So last week we talked about the fact that The regular principle really flows out of some very basic theological assumptions. That God, as the object of worship, determines what is pleasing to Him. You don't buy a gift for your wife or your girlfriend based upon what you want to give, but what the person you're giving the gift to desires to receive. God also determines what kind of worship is best and most edifying for His people. You know, we often think that we know what is best, that uh, we can look at the world and determine you know, what we need, what's going to draw people in, what's going to best bring us together as a community, what's best going to sanctify us. But the Reformers kept coming back to this idea, are we wiser than God? Doesn't He know what we need for our spiritual growth and edification? And then we also considered how historically... The regulative principle arose from the Reformation, out of the time of the Reformation, in response to Roman Catholic abuses. You know, they had holy water, and they had uh, <clears throat> the Mass, and they had icons and images, and all of these things. They said, okay, they may not be forbidden in Scripture, but they're not commanded in Scripture. And actually, they are idolatrous, because they're inventions of men. And thus, sola scriptura holds that Scriptures guide our worship. The Scriptures guide our worship. That's kind of basic to the regular principle. That's essentially what it says, that Scripture is sufficient. But, of course, we talked about, well, what's controversial about this? Doesn't everybody agree? At least it seems like in the evangelical world, everyone agrees that the Scriptures guide um, our worship. Everybody believes that the Bible is our authority, right? Well, we consider what is the difference then between the regulative principle and how Scripture guides our everyday lives. We talk about the fact that in our everyday lives, God does not give us specific Instructions, or I should say exhaustive instructions. He doesn't tell you who to marry. He doesn't tell you whether to make a business deal or not, or where to go to college, or what job to take. Uh, all of these other areas of the Christian life flow out of biblical wisdom and principles. But what we're saying is that the regulative principle is different than that. And we brought out the regulative principle in contrast to what's called the normative principle. And I Gave this chart right here. Regular principle is what's on top here. The Puritan view. True worship is only what is commanded. Anything not commanded is false worship. But the normative principle, which is Anglican, it's Roman Catholic, it's modern evangelicalism. True worship is anything that's commanded plus anything that's not forbidden in Scripture. So false worship is only what is condemned as idolatry in Scripture. And that's where we made the distinction between all of life and the regulative principle. The Scriptures are not exhaustive in guiding us in how we live. We do have some commandments, but we also have wisdom. We have Christian liberty. But the regulative principle is different. It holds that, the, that only what is specifically sanctioned by the Word is permissible and we are not free to add or subtract from it. Only what is commanded in Scripture is permissible in the corporate worship of God's people, and we're not free to add to it or take away from it. It differs from so much in our day, which default is whatever is not forbidden is okay. You know, if... if, If I stood up one day and said, from now on, in our services, we're not going to have any preaching. We're just going to sing. That's it. The regular principle is the principle which says that's not okay. You can't just decide that. You cannot subtract what God has sanctioned by His Word. I can't stand up and also say, "All right, from now on today... From this day forward, during time of corporate worship, we're going to watch movies. It's going to bring us together. I'm adding to worship that's not commanded in the Word. All right. So, any questions at this point? At this point? You'll have time to ask questions later. Alright, I want to look at some scripture, and we're not going to get through them all. But um, we're going to get through most of them. And I want to look at, where do we get this from scripture? Seems kind of arbitrary, huh? Well, And I want to start by remembering our working definition. We've got to be able to define the regular principle if we're going to find it in scripture. And so, in our confession, which mirrors... The sixteen, uh, excuse me, the six eighty nine mirrors the Westminster Confession in, um, on this chapter, and it mirrors the other Reformed confessions when it comes to worship. But in chapter twenty two the Baptists state the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself and is so limited—that's the key—by His own revealed will that He may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. That's our definition. God institutes worship. It's limited by His will. We're not free to worship Him in the context of corporate worship, most specifically, in ways that are not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Alright, so I want to look at this in Scripture and I've got a couple of points that I want to demonstrate. The first one is and we'll look at five or six Scriptures here and if you're able to help read and look up passages that would be helpful. But the first point I want to make is God alone determines how sinners may approach Him in worship. Where do we see this? We see this beginning in the Old Testament. God specifically regulated Old Testament worship because of his special presence in the temple. Deuteronomy 12:29 through 32, if someone would please look that up and read for us. It would be helpful. Deuteronomy 12:29 through 32. Kim?
1: Take care that you not be ensnared to follow them, after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods, that I also may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in, in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they have even burned their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do, and shall not add to it or take from it.
0: So even in the Old Testament, we see a distinction between all of life. The law did not regulate every single aspect of their lives. But the law did regulate, as we see here, every single aspect of worship. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take away from it. That is essentially the regulative principle. We're not free to look at the nations and say, oh cool, look at how the nations worship their gods. We want to do the same thing. We want to make a golden calf. That's that's great. We want to throw our sons and daughters in the fire. That's great. We want to cut ourselves, you know, and and chain ourselves up and do these crazy things and um, work ourselves into a frenzy and the worship of God. Take these drugs, right, to to have these hallucinations and these spiritual experiences. We want to do these things. But God says, "You shall not add or take away from it, and you shall not look at how other people, pagans, worship their gods and copy." Uh, we see this in Exodus twenty-five forty. I'll read that one since so I got it right here. It's just easy verse. Exodus twenty-five forty. God tells Moses, See that you make them. He's talking about the tabernacle. He's talking about um, the the table for bread, the golden lampstand, and all of the things that he is to make in the temple. And he says, See that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown to you on the mountain. Have this idea that we see this echoed in Hebrews that Moses was commanded to make everything in regards to the worship of God after the pattern that God has showed him. He was not free to innovate. We'll consider that more in a moment. Alright, so God alone determines how sinners may approach Him in worship. Second place we see this, or let's just say the third actually, is in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. Here, again, is another summary of the regulative principle. We see God identify Himself as the only proper object of worship. are free to worship another God. He also identifies the proper way in which to worship. He forbids the use of images. He also talks about the proper attitude of worship. Reverence. My name shall be reverenced as Holy. You're not to use my name in vain. You're not to invoke the name of God flippantly. You're not to dishonor the name of God. You're not to put, uh, I should say, act in any um, irreverent way under the banner of my name. And he even identifies the proper day of worship. One day in seven. This is the regularity of worship. You don't worship once a month. You don't worship once a year. This is to be a weekly thing. So, even in the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God, we see the regular principle of worship. Ways in which they're not free to innovate. Do you want to say, looking into the New Testament, we see the validity and continuing binding nature of these Ten Commandments. And that's a point of dispute. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it this morning. I just want to basically, hope it, I hope that it's not a point of dispute in our midst, but the Ten Commandments are upheld in the New Testament. Matthew 5, I came not to abolish the law. right? Don't relax the least of these commandments, which comes in the context of him expounding the Ten Commandments. He talks about lust. He talks about anger. He talks about all of these things that covetousness. He's basically uh, Matthew chapter the Sermon on the Mount is an exposition, an expositional sermon on the Ten Commandments. And he says, I didn't come to abolish this law. James chapter two quotes a few of the Ten Commandments. If you really fulfill the law of God. You'll do this, you'll do this, you'll do this. If you say you've done this, but you've done this, you've broken them all. He treats the Ten Commandments as a unit. If you've broken one, you've broken them all. You see in Romans 13, Paul says, Love is the fulfillment of the law. And he quotes three or four of the Ten Commandments. He says all of these are summed up in love. He isn't saying love has replaced the law he's saying love is the most purest expression of obedience to the law. Love is the root issue. There's love. How is love defined? Well, there's Ten Commandments that define what love is and of course the rest of Scripture as well. But my point is that the Ten Commandments speak on worship and the The New Testament treats the Ten Commandments different than it treats the ceremonial law and the sacrificial law. But the New Testament upholds the Ten Commandments as continuing to instruct us in the Christian life. We are still bound to obey them by the law of God. We're not free to dismiss them. Any questions there? All right, move it along. Again, the point here is that God alone determines how sinners may approach Him in worship. We see this in John chapter 4, verses 21 through 24. And Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Remember, Samaritans worshipped differently. They did not worship in Jerusalem. And they did not follow the, um, the same um, worship that the Jews did in Jerusalem. They had disputes over what was Scripture and what wasn't. They had some more, um, uh, what do you call it, um, syncretism. Mixing of Jewish elements of worship with other traditions It's it's interesting what Jesus says to the woman. He says, you worship what you do not know. They still worship Yahweh. They still look to the Old Testament. But He tells her, look, we worship what we know. Salvation is from the Jews. You've got it all wrong. But don't be mistaken. It's not about worshiping in Jerusalem anymore. The hour is coming. I've brought this hour, He's saying. But But now, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. And the point here is that truth has to be defined. That's what I'm trying to make. That truth has a definition to it. We're not free to just define truth how we see fit. But Jesus is saying you must worship in spirit from the heart. You must worship in truth in accordance with the scriptures. They go together. And that's my point. Truth. God must be worshipped in truth. Truth is defined by the word of God. We do not define truth for ourselves. Alright. Moving along here. Someone turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, please. And I, thank you, Trent. And um, I forgot how long to read here. Hold on. Did I put it up here? No. First Timothy 3, 5, uh Read. Read verse fourteen and fifteen, please, of First Timothy three. First
1: Timothy three fourteen fifteen. I hope to come soon. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to be behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, pillar and buttress.
0: Ah, here's that truth again. Truth comes up, just as Jesus said, right? The church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Kind of the foundational elements of the building that hold it together. And Paul talks about, now, well, actually, remember first that, you know, Paul's writing to Timothy, a minister. If you look at the context, you'll see that he's talking, they're called the pastoral epistles, because he's writing to Timothy to instruct him in matters regarded to worship, the church, Preaching. He talks about prayer here in chapter 2. Public corporate prayer. He talks about the qualifications for eldership in chapter 3. He talks about preaching and ministry and devotion to the Scriptures. Public reading of Scripture. Chapter 4. He talks about uh, widows and you know, care, diaconal cares in chapter 5. He's talking about the church. He's not talking about the Christian life. He's talking about the church specifically. And so he says, I'm writing to you these things. Here's why I'm writing to you. Because I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it to you. So that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, house of God here is temple temple imagery. Paul's appealing to this. This is Imagery denoting the presence of God, the house of God, right? All throughout the Old Testament. That uh, denotes the temple, and it denotes God's presence in His house. So the implication here is if He governed worship of the Old Testament temple, naturally we should assume the same when He talks about the New Testament temple. There's no reason why we should say, oh, the house of God is different now. The house of God denotes the temple, his, his presence, and thus his specific instructions. Just as a cross-reference here, I mentioned this earlier, but Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1, he's making a point and he says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. And he goes on from there, but the implication of this verse is, even the first covenant had it, so the second covenant has it as well. That's the implication if we looked at that in context. I'm not going to get distracted by that. The point is, Paul appeals to this house of God imagery. Then he references the church, which of course is the people gathered, organized, governed. We talked about a few weeks ago where two or three are present, I am there in their midst. Um, And we talked about how, you know, this isn't just talking about you know, two Christians who meet together for lunch in the break room at work. Um, the context is the governing of the church. This is a, a assembly of God's people in a formal, organized gathering properly governed, that God is present. Well this is what Paul has in mind here: the church, okay? the place of the living god again this phrase the living god denotes that he is dwelling in the midst of the church in his household and that he's active that's why he's called the living god this is the place of his activity paul is saying one ought to you, you may know how one ought to behave in the house of god the church of the living god the place of his activity All of this denotes God's presence. And of course, the key phrase here, how one ought to behave, there are special instructions and regulations within the church. That's why I'm writing to you, Timothy, so that you may know specifically the regulations and instructions... That govern the church, the place of God's dwelling. All right, moving along with another scripture here. I'm making good time. You guys are being quiet. Still in the pastoral epistles. Second Timothy 3:16 and 17. Paul writes to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training and righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Now, several weeks ago, Trent, you were with me when Pastor Sam Waldron um, preached on this passage at Ron Miller's installation up in uh, Clarksville. And he made the point there that the man of God, in this context, refers to the ordained minister. It's a key phrase. It's a phrase that appears in the Old Testament only in regards to a man specially sent for a task, a prophet or a man like Moses or David. And The man of God in the New Testament also is reserved. It's not talking about just a godly man but that the man of God refers specifically to the ordained minister. The man who has been sent to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is writing to Timothy, who is a pastor. I've mentioned it before, but we can make a grave mistake by reading First and Second Timothy and Titus and think that God is talking to just everybody generally. That is instruction given to pastors and deacons. Doesn't mean it doesn't apply to everybody. But when Paul tells Timothy, preach the word in season and out, give yourself to the public reading of Scripture, study to show thyself approved, it doesn't have the same implication to my wife that it does to me. It's written to ministers, and only secondarily applies to people who are not in ministry. But his point here is that the man of God has, given, has been given the scriptures for these things, which are the work of ministry in the church. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness is the calling of the minister in the church of the living God. the scriptures are sufficient for all of that. And they are able to make this man, this minister in his ministry, complete and equipped. He's got the tools necessary for every good work. Every leaves nothing out. Nothing else is necessary to effectively minister the gospel nothing else is necessary to teach to reprove to correct to train and so that's why the regular principle really just flows out of sola scriptura if you believe the bible is the word of god if you believe it is sufficient we don't need to add to it if you believe that it is without error Then naturally we realize okay, in the church, nothing else is necessary. This is a way in which Scripture teaches us that God determines how we may approach Him in worship. Because in the church, He's given the Scriptures, and they are sufficient and they are complete. Alright, we'll take questions in just a second. Another passage. 1 Corinthians 14. I'm just going to refer to kind of the whole chapter. I'm going to just mention a few verses out of it. 1 Corinthians 14 talks about spiritual gifts. When I first started this study, I I had planned to talk about spiritual gifts. (laughs) But I don't know if we're going to get to it. I didn't plan on taking 15 weeks to get this far. And if I jumped into that deep end, it might be six or eight weeks before I get out. <laughs> but 1 Corinthians 14 talks about the speaking in tongues. Prophecy. Miraculous spiritual gifts that, admittedly, we believe are no longer active in the church. That they died out when the apostles died out, but that God used them for a specific season and for a specific purpose in that season. But regardless of that, I still believe strongly that the principles of 1 Corinthians 14 still apply, even though the gifts stated there are no longer active. For example, he says here in verse 26. When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. He's talking about coming together in worship. And he's giving a principle. Let all this be done for building up. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, he says, let there be only two or three at most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. When talking about prophecy in verse 27, or tongues. All right, so he has this edification in mind. He gives instructions about two or three at most. Even in regards to prophecy, verse 29 let two or three prophets speak, let the others weigh what is said. If revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. He's very specific in his instructions. Doesn't matter if two or three prophets have spoken. And someone just gets this fresh revelation from God. Oh my goodness, a meteorite's going to strike tomorrow. He still has to be silent. Because God has given instructions for the edification and building up of His church. Yes? Does this mean we
1: should have two pastors for
0: every service? No. Although, I have been in Arpka churches, Reformed Baptist churches, where they have a reading of Scripture and... Then um, the men of the congregation, the elders, are invited to stand up and give an exhortation in obedience to this. Um, I don't believe that it applies in the same way because our context is different. Um, We don't have prophets anymore. Um, But thanks for that question. That's not an easy one to answer. <laughs> if anyone thinks he is a prophet, verse thirty-seven, or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Paul says, I am giving you commandments from Scripture, from the Lord. You're not free to innovate. You're not free to move beyond these commandments. Corinthians and decide for yourself how you're going to run your worship service. And again, the principles are what I want to hit on. Order. What is proper, which we'll talk about when we get to music. What is proper? What is fitting? What is in accordance with the principles of Scripture? What is in good taste? What is for the edification of of God's people, that's what I believe is applicable to us. The commands of the Lord in regards to these things—it's not the specifics that are important, and we'll get to that when we talk about the regular principle. It's not the specifics of you know whether we have, meet in an air-conditioned building or whether we use a microphone or not, or whether we meet at ten thirty or at eleven thirty. It's not specific whether I stand on a stage or stand down below. That's not what the regulative Principle speaks of. It talks about the principles of worship. What we actually do as offerings of praise to God. That's what the regulative Principle concerns. Alright, so that's my first point, which is God alone determines how sinners may approach Him in worship. I didn't think we'd get beyond that, but picking up next week, we'll start right here. That innovation in worship nullifies and undermines true worship and invites the special judgment of God. And we're going to look at how Scripture, I believe, Scripture teaches that. And this is, of course, a bookend, the flip side of... uh Uh-oh, come on, don't do that to me. It's a bookend, the flip side of this right here, that God determines how we may approach Him. We see that from these Scriptures, but we also see it because... Innovation, as in Scripture, undermines true worship and invites a special judgment of God. And we, I believe the Scriptures teach this very clearly. So that's as far as we're going to get today. This is where we'll pick up next week. And we will finish this point too. There's only a few slides on it. And then we will try to turn to some application. What does this mean for our worship? If God determines how He is to worship, what does this mean in our day and age? And we'll turn to make specific application of that. Any questions or comments or objections that maybe you'd like me to cover next week?
1: (laughs) Kim? wisdom to that, so some would say, well, this this is what you know, we believe, but others might say, well, your wisdom is innovation.
0: <laughs>
1: what, what is, I mean, how do you define who regulates wisdom?
0: Yeah, yeah, um, that's not what I said. Um, I made the distinction between, well, you, you weren't here last week, yeah. so um, I said that Wisdom guides us in all of life in a way that's different than the Scriptures guide us in worship. Wisdom guides us in our financial decisions. Decisions on who we marry, what jobs we take, where we move. Because the Scriptures are not exhaustive. What I said in regards to worship, God has not left that same freedom. He's given us specific instructions and we're not to add or take away from it. Um, The only place that wisdom comes into play in the regards of worship is in relation to the um, circumstances of worship. What time we meet. Whether we have AC on, we use a microphone, what songs we sing, what scriptures we read. All of the practical matters, wisdom comes into play. But what do we offer to God as our worship? We're not given principles of wisdom. We cannot paint a picture and say, this is my offering of praise to you, God. No, we sing a song. We offer a prayer. We read and listen to His Word. We observe the Lord's Supper. We don't, you know, holy water, um, relics, images the mass, all of these innovations of man, um, even though they may not be condemned in Scripture, are not permitted in Scripture because God hasn't left worship to the wisdom and innovation of whatever we think is best. Does that make sense? Okay. Because that's a good point. Who defines wisdom? If it's wisdom, then who defines it? And ultimately, we're going to say if... If we fall into that, it's defined by our culture because we're shaped by our culture. Preaching now isn't something we stand up and give a thesis in three points or uh, stand and declare, but we sit on a school, stool and have a conversation. We get rid of the pulpit. That's what our culture says because that's what people like. And admittedly, people like that. But are we free just to decide, okay, preaching is no longer a proclamation, but now it's a conversation. Are we free to say that? Are we free to say we're not even going to do preaching because now we're just going to sing hymns. That's what people respond to. It seems most wise to us, right? Are we free to say, no longer preaching, but now we're going to have drama because people can really identify with a story and with movies. We live in a See, if we, if we say wisdom in regards to the um, elements of worship, then we're basically saying that the culture around us and our perception of it defines what is pleasing to God and what is good for His people. And you're right. There's no end once we start down that rabbit hole. All right, we've got to uh, to end. So if you have any questions, you can let me know afterwards. But let's close in prayer.